you know, the importance of creating a feeling and a, the importance of creating a kind of sensation of, you know, whether that's calmness or whether it's the something that's much more dynamic and exciting. The nature, the architecture has to uplift, you know, it has to go beyond the functional, go beyond the pragmatic. The functional in itself is never thrilling. But if you can evoke a feeling, evoke emotion, evoke a sense, that's where the the thrill comes. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel all the elements of a well-lived life. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you'll have heard a lot of lessons and insights into how design can shape that so-called well-lived life. On today's special episode, sponsored by Duravit, we're exploring an idea that often gets lost in all of the hype. How can good design make our lives better? We're going to meet three guests whose latest projects are extolling the virtues of good design. When it comes to great architecture that really does have incredible meaning, I'll be speaking with British designer Amanda Levite. Based in London, her award-winning practice includes everything from fashion boutiques and concert halls to subway stations and museums, notably a 2017 addition to the Victoria and Albert Museum. But one recently completed project in particular has gained well-deserved attention, a cancer care centre in Southampton, England, that provides a sense of tranquility to those who truly need it most. I'll also speak with a rising star in the world of product design, who in just a decade or so of practice has injected a bit of old-fashioned discipline and conceptual rigor to his field, Sebastian Herkner. His values of craft and materiality, starting with some of his earliest projects as a fresh graduate, have helped an industry to find its relevance in the 21st century. But first, I speak with Simone Rothman, a design world veteran and co-founder of Future Air, a startup looking to bring a breath of fresh air to our homes, quite literally. By connecting technology and health together with the aid of legendary product designer Ross Lovegrove. In the age of COVID, the White House just held a summit on indoor air quality last week, we're waking up to understand the vital importance of health and the environment in ways that go way beyond sustainability. I caught up with Simone from her offices in New York to speak about why design is important to her mission, how working with Ross is making future air a reality, and why every home in the future will have an air monitor. I guess I wanted to just, I've known you for a while and I know future air pretty well. Um, but your your background isn't necessarily in technology, um, but design. So maybe you can just explain a little bit about your life leading up to your professional life leading up to Future Air. It's really cool, actually, because I think you know I was living in Paris. Yeah, in the eighties, basically, I was working for Noel, which is how I met Ross, who's now one of my co-founders, and I was introduced kind of haphazardly to um, someone at Apple, computer in France. And they were just about to build a new headquarters with uh, studios, architecture. And I had no idea who studios even was, uh, although they did build most of the beginnings of Silicon Valley. So that was my first introduction to really the world of, of serious architecture, like buildings and technology together. So that was the beginning of my journey into the worlds of design, uh, architecture, and technology. 
and it was in Paris with Americans. So it was really cool. After that introduction, I was hired to open Studio's first office in Europe. As everyone knew, if you wanted to do work on the continent, you had to have a presence on the continent. Like having a London office didn't really count at that point. It counted for Americans, but not for the rest of uh, the world. So I helped studios uh, open that first, their first uh, Paris office. And, uh, and I worked at the intersection of design and technology. And when did you start Future Air? How did that happen? So, uh, well, so then I went to work after Noel, I went to work for studios and I spent 14 years there, which was amazing. Uh, I opened their Paris office and then opened their New York office and then had two, two daughters in between somehow. Uh, and then I got the strangest call and uh, it was to work for a company based in Hong Kong. So that was Taiping. And that was another incredible journey. So I'd never been in Asia. So I did that for, uh, oh my God, 10 years also. So the last year at Taiping, I moved to Shanghai to open their first office there. And that was really important because Taiping is owned by the Peninsula Hotel Group, the same family that owns Peninsula. And they had a big presence in Shanghai, but it was really the beginning of Shanghai. But that was also the height of the pollution there. And in the morning, everyone in China wakes up and they look at their air quality app. And I started doing that. And that was my wake-up call. As, along with the dark skies during the middle of the day, um, I was like, oh my God, this is serious. So that was kind of like the catalyst for time to go home. And the first thing I did when I got home is in New York, I uh, trained with Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, and I started to understand what's going on in the air outside. Um, but being that I had spent most of my time on the design side in on interiors, I started kind of looking into that. And that was something that nobody was really looking into at the time. And it's an, it wasn't regulated. I mean, still isn't really regulated, although now at least we have some norms for indoor air quality. So I went from AQI, air quality index, to IAQ, indoor air quality, and became I, I just started just doing research and and then I was fortunate enough to at a clean tech conference before I knew what clean tech was in New York meet my first uh, my second co-founder actually so Ross and I started designing while well, Ross was designing I was working with him on air products like fans and new air conditioners and 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 then uh, our our technology person said, but we really need sensing technology to be embedded. And so that was the beginning of Future Air. And so we, you know, I incorporated, we came up with a name, had a logo, you know, I did everything I had done in my past, but it was for me, uh, my company, and I had two amazing um, co-founders to start. And so what does Future Air do? Tell me about this sort of device and kind of the state of it now. Right. Okay. So uh, Future Air is design forward sensing technology. And it, it the idea is that it in order to know what how to repair air, you have to know what's in it. And so so basically this sensing technology senses CO2, which is human presence. Uh, it senses um, particulate matter, which we all know what that is now, uh, and different size particles. 
and it senses VOCs, and that that's volatile organic compounds. That's a, like a plethora of um, different types of uh, organic compounds. That some are benign, and some are actually toxic, and and so that's a really important sensor. And then, in order to collect data and keep data and analyze it, you need Wi-Fi, and you need a cloud-based data analytics engine. And so we kind of we all went to London. Uh, because I think part of the traction for the tech team was the fact that there was this design component and it was really big design. It was Ross Lovegrove. I mean, you know, that's kind of the top of the heap when it comes to industrial design. And so they were mesmerized and I was able to really keep the team together because of that design ethos. And, um, and we were really, we are still the first that has brought serious design to the world of indoor air. Um, um, measuring. So, you know, take me through what one of these, I've seen them in your offices and, and it, can you describe, it looks like a small, like an old fashioned Wi-Fi base station. It's like a little dome. Uh, but beyond that, take us through that kind of experience. Okay. So if you, it does have a name, it's called Sam. And SAM is an acronym for Smart Air Manager. And that's really important because we really didn't just want to monitor air and air pollutants. We wanted to measure and manage. Uh, so SAM, Smart Air Manager, is uh, what we do. And that's part of our, along with design, that's part of what differentiates us is that we're measuring in real time. That means every minute. So each of these sensors sends uh, data to the cloud every minute. And that's really important because you need a timestamp on every occurrence so that you know when one of these sensors is reporting a breach in the level of that particular sensor. So in the case of particulate matter, dust, right? Um, it, there, there are standards like well, uh, lead, like EPA. There's a whole bunch of agencies that have parameters for each of these pollutants that are commonly found indoors. And so uh, that is really the heart of what we're doing. And it's uh, it's really cool because all of a sudden you can start to visualize, you can look at the data and see, oh, wow, okay. And then Sam changes color based on any, when it breaches any one of those parameters for air quality. And you have to go look at the data to understand which pollutant is uh, it has a presence. And we're not just looking for a presence because sometimes you get a presence of, of a pollutant, but it's, it's just in passing. What we're looking for are trends so that when you see particulate matter go up, that you see it trending at a high level that is breaching a parameter. And then you know you need to filter air. And, and the way that works, just to keep going, is SAM connects with other devices like an air purifier. So today, an air purifier stays on all day long because it doesn't know when it should go on or off. That's a huge waste of energy. But SAM can tell the air purifier there's dust in the air at this hour. It can either go on every day at that hour or it can uh, go on when that occurrence happens, depending on how long that pollutant stays in the air. And that's key because if it, there's a blip in dust, we're not, that 
that doesn't, that's really not going to affect your health. But if there's dust every day uh, at certain times of the day and you're being exposed to that, it's not healthy. You had described to me a certain uh, kind of like a mystery that had been solved in some of in your headquarters and sort of the shared space that you guys are in, um, where a monitor had picked up something that had sort of identified a trend, which I think kind of zeroes in on exactly the great thing about the SAM is that it can kind of say, it can, you have not just one sensor, obviously, but for a big space, you have multiple. So can you tell me a little bit about that story and, and how many sensors you had running at the same time? Right. I mean, honestly, the, the, the SAM, which is what, where all of the sensors sit, um, covers a space of around a thousand square feet. It's pretty big. Um, uh, it's pretty big range. And in this particular case study, uh, at one of the new lab companies, um, we were seeing really high levels of VOCs. And VOCs cover like, there are something like 389 common VOCs. And we don't always know, it's not always completely obvious which one it is. But in this case, when you look at the timestamp, you can sort of see that it was corresponding to the air systems in this in that particular case study. And, um, and so we got in touch with the facilities group at New Lab. They brought in their AC people, and it turned out that there was one of the pipes was leaking, one of the ducts was leaking refrigerant, oh. uh, which is a hydrofluorocarbon. It's uh, poisonous air, and that's kind of how we get cancer. <laughs> you know, that's just that without knowing, uh, you you may never know. Uh, and and this is you know that's just one case study, and there are some really funny ones also. But um, uh, that you, in order to know for sure that air indoor air is healthy, you need to measure. Period. There's no question in my mind. And indoor air is, according to the EPA, is up to a hundred times worse than outside. And also um, outdoor air is improving with electric uh, vehicles and renewable energy. So really the problem we need to solve now is indoor air pollution. And it's a kind of dirty little secret that uh, still people are, are unaware of. Um, I'm obsessed, as you can tell. And what is the state of the state of the startup today? Can someone go online and purchase a SAM or what is the, you, you know, this is, this is a, a huge undertaking and, and you guys are a small team and you've been on this journey for a while with Ross and, and yes. all of your tech guys. And, and uh, can people purchase this now? Or is this like something that, you know, is still kind of, you know, still being developed. So no, it's, it's developed. We have a working prototype, which is really cool. We've actually sold uh, kind of a limited edition hand finished uh, 30 uh, prototypes that will hopefully that Paola, our friend Paola Antonelli might uh, include them in uh, the, the MoMA collection one day, like some of the other uh, products Ross has designed. Uh, so and what we're doing, which is actually really exciting, and I can't talk too much about it, but we're forming a partnership with a company that does air remediation, which is the ultimate solution. And then we can use, they love SAM, they love our product, and they want to connect it to their systems. And and that is what we're uh, talking about right now. So we're talking about this partnership um, with uh with this air company. And um, that's very exciting because that's really the ultimate 
solution is to have the whole package. And just because we mentioned it earlier, we're also, and again, I can't say who, but we're working with a really cool um, plastics company that it, that uses uh, ocean plastics and recycles them. So the idea is that the enclosure for Sam will be a recycled ocean plastic and they're beautiful. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, and so in your I'm curious, like in your own home, is there anything that you do to sort of or that you have done in order to kind of improve air quality? Because obviously, you know, today in any kind of design, you know, serious kind of design product, there's there's talk about materiality and sustainability and making the product, but not always in in what happens once you bring it home and the life cycle of it and how that affects things. Take me through like in your own home, like what's that been like? So I don't go anywhere without a Sam, uh, including my home has one. My kids are also uh, kind of very, uh, um, how do I say, they're very interested and they, you know, so basically Sam has this color, this light color system. So when it changes color, you, you see, that something has changed in the air. And, and, and then sometimes it changes right back. So it, go, it can go from blue to yellow to red. Um, but when it stays red, that's when you look around and say, okay, what have I done? Sometimes we still use a gas stove. Uh, we can see exactly when we turn that stove on. Now I'm much more careful. I make sure I turn it on and off really quickly when I don't need it. Or I mean, that's uh, obvious. But sometimes, you know, you're doing something else and you're letting the gas run and uh, the gas stove run. So uh, becoming much more conscious of the connections between what we do and uh, what's going on in the air. And so we also have, for example, we have a fireplace in our in our home. You know, I live in an old New York building and, um, and really we shouldn't be running it, but I love to have it. But I can see when we light a fire, Sam goes red immediately because it's picking up particulates. And, um, and then when the fire kind of dies down, Sam turns blue again. So we're starting to see that's really, that's key is starting to really see, visualize what happens in the air when you do things. And one of the really easy solutions that's kind of obvious that we don't do enough is just open your windows. Hopefully you have operable windows. I am on a mission to make sure that like in France, in the US, we start to use operable windows in offices because that's a big problem in offices. Today, you can open a window in a, in a typical building, high rise, although in a high rise residential building, you can always, it's like by law, you have to have operable windows. Opening a window makes all of the difference. And it's something that you don't really think of doing until you see that there's something going on. And if there was one thing you wanted people to understand about the future air and, and why air quality is so important, what would you want that one thing to be? So, well, can I say two? One is health and well-being, because I think if you, if you're measuring, um, you're managing. If you're, if you see that there's a problem, then you could start to fix it. So, so that's one. And then um, I would say uh, use design as a vehicle for communicating. I think nobody, not too many people have done that. I would say, you know, Tony Fadell at Nest 
is the best example of there are a million thermostats out there, but the Nest took over because of design and technology. And I think that is, uh, I think that's kind of what we want to do with future air for measuring air. Because, and and I kept thinking when Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion, um, that they were going to embed sensing in, because that's one thing Tony didn't do. Uh, and it seemed like a logical thing to add sensors to a thermostat, but they didn't. They actually went the other way and kind of dumbed it down. Um, but I think that there's so much opportunity to improve our lives using design and technology. Do you think, do you think Future Air would be where it is today without design? No. I mean... I can't say because I wouldn't be there. I mean, my my <laughs> my my life revolves around that combination, and and since my days with Apple was the beginning of that, and I I really believe that design and technology is underutilized in the world. It's it's gotten obviously it's gotten much better with with companies like Apple and um, and and Nest, but um, but I think it's still, uh, it still has ways to go. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Duravit. Founded in 1817 in Germany's Black Forest, Duravit is the international authority on design-driven bathrooms. The company collaborates with leading designers from around the globe to create spaces that enhance your quality of life. With the virtues of design entrenched in its DNA, the company has garnered more than 180 awards for excellence. And for those that know its incredible offerings, it's not hard to see why. The incredible designs are found in some of the top museums around the world, from the V&A Museum in Dundee, Scotland, to the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. The best thing about Duravit, however, in the mind of this grand tourist, is the brand's versatility. There is literally no kind of bathroom that couldn't utilize the incredible pieces the company offers. Take the line by Philippe Stark, simply called Me. It's a totally versatile system that can fit any home's design. It can go from sleek and modern to warm and tactile. For more information on Duravit or to find your local distributor, visit www.duravit.us or call 888-Duravit. My next guest is Sebastian Herkner. In my view, he's one of the secret weapons of the contemporary design world. Young, prolific, disciplined, and with an eye for detail, he represents a new generation of product designers. The German talent burst onto the scene with the Bell Table in 2012, which combined glass and brass in a way that was refreshing at the time and started a trend that's still going on today. He opened his practice in 2006 after working briefly for Stella McCartney. He graduated from the Offenbach Design Academy in 2007, and his client roster today lists nearly every name in design, from BMW and Moroso to Capolini and Fritz Hansen. His latest is the Zencha bathroom for our sponsor Duravit, which marries high-tech surfaces and modularity with soft curves inspired by Japanese rituals and craftsmanship. I wanted to ask Sebastian how he got his big break, how Zencha came to be, what he learned from Stella McCartney, and more. I've known you for a while, and you know, you've had a career that I remember when I was writing about design a long time ago, and you seem to kind of pop up out of nowhere and you were quickly recognized for your work when it when you kind of hit a stride but i don't know much about your early life can you tell me tell me about like where you grew up and like wh what that was like what was a young sebastian like yeah there are actually two parts of my 
of my life. I'm now 41 years old, so half of it I'm living in Offenbach where I started and the 20 years before I lived with my parents, and uh, which was in Bad Mergentheim, which is a city with maybe 25,000 people. And then we lived actually in the village next to it with 750 people, so really on the countryside and uh, with an older brother and uh, my father, electrician, my mother, a nurse. And so nothing about art, design, architecture, so it was not really a discipline my family was living in. And I think this was at the end also a little bit like a starting point for my, uh, for my career. I really enjoyed being with my father in his workshop to build something by ourselves, to repair something. We built a garage, we built a, a garden house and things like this. So I grew up already with a hammer and a saw when I was three, four, five years old. And uh, when, it, when you were in school... Uh, what made you kind of go off to study design? Like, how did, is that kind of just inspired you to do that? Or did you change, you know, your studies? Or were you always looking to study design? Well, I was always, since the beginning, I was a creative person. So this was the best way to express myself and to express my ideas and to communicate sometimes also with, with people from different ages also. And uh, design itself was never a topic at school. Mm. There was about architecture, about art, paintings, photography, but design was not all, not visible also in, in newspapers or in the yeah daily news. And this came actually by coincidence because I was looking for the people who are doing products like chairs I saw on flea markets, I saw on the street or in interiors of friends of my parents. Uh, I remember the two streets down uh, our house there was a family living and they had sarinen chairs nowadays i know and it was completely different yeah. to the wooden chairs we had at home which were very traditional german kind of bavarian let's say and uh, then i saw this organic plastic like uh, white sarinen chairs with a, a crazy upholstered yeah pillow and this really catched my eyes and i was doing research okay who's doing the person designing things like this and of course at the beginning were architects but now there was already the discipline coming up to study design and, and when you were in in school I, I read that you you had an internship with stella mccartney how did that uh how did that happen yeah, I, I then moved from Bad Mergentheim to Offenbach, which is a city next to Frankfurt, and I started to study product design. And then after my pre-diploma, I had the possibility and opportunity to move to London to work for Stella McCartney. It was by coincidence, because at that time I did a little bit fashion designs by my own and some friends, they wore them in London, and then... Uh, the designs catch the eyes of Stella, and she asked who did them. And then actually, like three, four weeks later, I was in in London to work at her studio, which was also at her beginning. So it was maybe her second or third year with her own brand. And uh, what was your first presentation at, at uh, Satellite, for those who don't know, is, uh, is um, an incredible sort of showcase of emerging designers uh, in Milan during uh, Milan Design Week uh, at the Salone del Mobile. What was, what was your first presentation there like? The first presentation was actually 2009, so two years after my graduation, and I shared the space with a friend of mine, and we, every, both of us designed three pieces separately, and we used our transport boxes, wooden crates, as a display. We put spots inside and pr pr uh, placed our designs inside, and for me, which is, is still known, mm -hmm. uh, was the bell table was the first ah. one on 2009. 
It was okay. presented there. You know, the bell table I designed actually for Salona Satellite. So you have to apply. And then Marva Criven and her team, uh, she founded also Salona Satellite. They choose like 120 designers from all over the world. So it's really an international hub for young creatives. And so I had like three or four months time to develop a couple of designs. And there was a lamp, there was a chair, and there was also this bell table. And and the feedback was quite quite great from the from the journalists, especially, you know, they are the ones coming around, sometimes also producers passing by. But at that time, it was really uh, a favorite of the international journalists, and they put it in the magazines. But for me, it was so difficult to find a producer who was able or who was able to do it, but also who liked it to put it in the portfolio. Because when I started in Offenbach, it was really about new technologies, new materials, new plastics. It was about CNC milling, 3D printing, even my university, which was dedicated to craftsmanship because Offenbach was the German leather city of leather production, like Mauplau was producing here. And this, my university, they closed the, the workshop for ceramic and, and leather, more or less when I arrived. And I really realized that there's something missing now. Also in the city, the workshops closed and the city somehow lost its identity because leather and leather production was something connecting all the families because there was someone in the workshop, someone packaging, someone distribution, and so all suppliers. So there were so many thousands of people working in that industry. And this disappeared in 2005, maybe. And uh, I realized that there was something missing and it was more about also the social sustainability to think about the beauty of crafts. And then I decided to do the bell table using glass, so mouth-blown glass and metal-spinned brass. All the companies I tried to catch for my design, they said, no, it's a kind of old-fashioned, we are not interested in glass and brass. And this was mm. 2009. Mm. And then two years later, 2011, Oliver Holy contacted me from the brand Classicon from Munich. He would like to have a table for his own and for the mother. So I produced some. At the end, he asked me if he can put it in production but this was also a big yeah about argument in his company because that time they just did contemporary designers like uh concerning richard but also classic one like eileen cray and it was more about chrome so mm. silver and then the bell table was about brass so it was also for him internally in the company to really to discuss it okay let's try something else and then we put it on the market together with another size in 2012 from th from that moment. So for 10 years now, it's a very successful product. And this brings me to one of your, your new designs uh, for Durovit, uh, the Zensha. Um, I mean, it must be also nice uh, for you and maybe for your parents to have one of the biggest industrial names in Germany to kind of uh, to have a major collection. You know, you're you're definitely in good company with people like Philippe Stark and things like that. Um, how did that project come about? Yeah, well, there's actually always a personal uh, somehow connection or introduction. I met the the former marketing director at the presentation at Classicon and Oliver Holy, the owner of Classicon, introduced me to Matthias. And then we stayed in contact for a couple of years. And then at the end, we maybe two years later, we met at the headquarters of Durovich. So I, that's why I really like to meet people first physically and that's why i'm really a big fan of affairs of, of course there are affairs uh 
maybe struggling also, but it was on, on the Milan show, which is still the, or it is definitely the, the biggest international one. And it's so important really to meet people, to get in contact. And then they invited me to the company to look behind the scenes, which is always the starting point. So important really to understand. And like you said, uh, in Hornberg, Durovit is definitely the, Yeah, one of the biggest design brands in Germany. It's very much connected to German design. And I was uh, maybe a little bit nervous also to go there to look behind the scenes, like I said, Philip Stark and other big names. Yeah. And uh, But it, it was really an amazing experience to go there to see the production of the craftsmen, how they do still nowadays a lot by hand, like mm. the ceramic making, the furniture making, And all these disciplines, they're very traditional still. Of course, on the other hand, you have also robots and newest technologies to produce also maybe more efficient somehow. But there are also still a lot of craft men and craft women involved. When it comes to Zencha, you know, how do you think when it comes and how you got its, how the collection got its name, um, how does this connect to, you know, design in, in, in the year 2022 in terms of where we are, you know, as, as, uh, if someone were to look up this design in the future in a, in a, a design encyclopedia and come, go back in time, what would you say that, that this collection says about this new period that we're in? Yeah, well, I think censure for me is quite a poetic. It's about the senses. And when I talk about design, design is really about the senses and understanding by using all the senses. This was something I was really missing. I, we, I had during the last two years a lot of calls with my clients and journalists and all the people I know, And but it, there was no physical moment. And I think this is so important also with a fair or real presentation that we can grab something, we can smell it, we can maybe taste it also. And I think Senja definitely is a collection you want to touch because of the smooth shape of the, of the thing the structure of the class and all the other materials in their combination. And I think this is something we all miss really about the quality. And I think that's why we also have the kind of renaissance of the real materials like the glass, the brass. And now there was about uh, ceramic, it's about marble, it's about, there's a revival for rugs. So about different wool textures, let's say. And I think in a world which becomes more and more transparent or digital, on the other hand, we want to have the quality. We want to touch things with our eyes, with our hands, and we want to hear. And it's really about those human moments, which are different to artificial intelligence, to robots and so on. So we are humans and we want to experience with our senses. And I think that's why Senja is on the point at the moment that it's really about the, yeah, like I said, the slowness, the ceremony, the ritual, and really focused on this moment we have in our privacy, yeah, in the bathroom. And when you, when Duravid came to you, um, what was the brief, you know, like what were they looking to you for? Yeah, well, it was not really carte blanche, but they were looking for something for a, uh, for middle premium segment let's say mm -hmm. and at the end they wanted to have a sebastian hackner product so something which is really about my design philosophy about my how i think about shapes the elegance and uh, this was the starting point and then i came up with this idea to 
to think about something very smooth with a nice detail, like a teacup, which was mm. one I, I took to the presentation or to the yeah, first meeting presentation of the design. It was the the very delicate a very delicate teacup I bought in in Asia. And I think it's it's really about this. The bathroom for me, I think, is one of the places at home I, I I'm always offline. In the morning, in the evening, I'm by my own. Mm. Because nowadays, even in the bedroom, I check emails, I check on the tablet and so on, and I'm still a little bit working. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think the, the bathroom is the only place I'm really for my own. And it's the, 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 the place every morning I recharge, I start, I think about the day, I check the schedules and everything. And uh, also in the evening. So we wanted to do something which is about a ritual, about the slowness, about really being aware of yourself, being with yourself. And it's a little bit like a ceremony. So let's think about the washing ceremony in Asia or the tea ceremony in Asia, which is also about yeah, focusing on the single objects, focusing on the time or the ritual or the ingredients. And I think this is also about... Uh, very much about the design and design process and development. It's really thinking about the all the involved people, about the materials, the story one to create. And this is also the story of Sensha to do something which is really focusing on ourselves to about the slowness, which is also a topic in the design, I think. Slow design, like we have also with slow food. It's really about the quality it's about the materials, so we asked Durovit to combine materials in the collection with structured glass surfaces, with wooden surfaces. Then you have the ceramic, you have very decent, uh, delicate colorways. And I think they, if you look at the pictures and the videos we did together, you really uh, get the atmosphere and the story behind. And what, speaking about the materials, um, there is this thing called DuraCream, that is used in the, can you explain what that is and and how did you work with it yeah well uh, this is their own uh, material they use for on one hand they have a special material for the bathtubs which is not a ceramic and then they have their own ceramic as well so they really have their own recipes uh, to get their certain quality standard so this is always very interesting of course for me as a designer to to understand uh, what they do better than others and for me, uh, like you s see in the bell table, it's really about the materials, about the color, it's about the material combinations. And on one hand, you have those uh, ceramic materials. On the other hand, I wanted to bring also more natural materials like the wood, like the glass, like materials I work a lot with in other projects, like in furniture or lighting ones as well. And I think it's, and this was also something new, I would say, for for Duravit to have these uh, combinations of materials. And the process of the whole development was also about a couple of years. So it was really focusing on the materials, thinking about the best solutions, thinking about the precision, because we have on the sink, on the basar, we have this very delicate edge, like with the T-bowl again, very smooth on the top. And we wanted to have the same slim one on the frameworks of the drawers, of the cabinets. And they put a lot of engineering in it really to develop it um, for the 
yeah for the for the doors and everything because if you think about durovit it's not just about 10 pieces a year or 10 pieces a month it's really about the quantity because they are one of the biggest suppliers for bathroom objects and bathroom furnitures in the world so it's really about the quantity but without losing the the quality so they really stand for their principles so it it takes a, a lot of time really to develop all the single aspects and details together before we return to the program another word from our sponsor Duravit. one of the brand's daring design visionaries is none other than rock star designer and former guest of this very podcast philippe stark the influential Frenchman's award-winning white tulip collection for Duravit is inspired by the elegant shape of a tulip in full bloom. The collection allows one to create your very own stark-designed domestic oasis, from wash basins and tubs to furniture. The white tulip collection has various finishes, wood options, and a circular chrome handle as an eye-catching option that's oh-so-stark. And if this grand tourist had the space, he wouldn't hesitate to install his favorite element of the collection, the freestanding and perfectly round bathtub that can transform any bathroom into a nature-inspired spa. For more information on Duravit or to find your local distributor, visit www.duravit.us or call 888-DURAVIT. My next guest brings a soulful and inspired touch to the world of contemporary architecture, Amanda Levine. The London-based visionary has a storied and distinguished history in the profession. Her latest is a project that has not only won awards, but makes a difference in the lives of so many. She's designed the latest iteration of Maggie Centre. This non-profit cancer care centre is one of many throughout the UK, where each one is designed by some of the most forward-thinking architects in the world, from Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid to Snowheda. And if you're looking for a bit of visual inspiration, I'd highly suggest you check out the YouTube video by Nowness of Amanda's incredible home that she designed in North London, where I recently spoke to her from. And when you meet a client for a first time, you know, and you're, you're having that kind of first meeting with them, how do you describe your work to them? What is your, do you have a, uh, an elevator pitch that you like to say, this is who I am and, and this is what I do and how your work stands out amongst, you know, let's say you're competing with five other firms. How do you like to describe your, your practice? I, I always feel quite self-conscious describing, you know, what makes us special, why people should work with us. I, I rather the work speaks for itself, but, you know, there, there are maybe a couple of things that are very particular to the way that we work. And I think the first one is that we always start with a conversation and not a sketch. It's because a sketch commits too much too early on. And a conversation is a deeply collaborative thing. It's not the kind of auteur, you know, doing the sketch, the master doing the sketch. It's, it's, it's much more open. It leaves open the possibilities for a lot longer. And that, and that conversation includes the client and, you know, the, 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 all of the different people who are perhaps going to be impacted by, by what, um, we design. You know, the other thing that perhaps defines us is we're very, we love to push the limits of things, whether that's conceptual thinking, whether that's a technical innovation or a material innovation or to use a material in a different way to, you know, it doesn't matter what the scale is. It can be micro, it could be macro, but to try and advance the debate 
in some way that you know that's really important and the other i guess the third thing is the you know for for us to to take on a job it needs to have a sense of social purpose and you can get social purpose so you know you can find it and in in many many different areas but i think that it's um interestingly if you know if i look back on uh, the the people that we've worked for in the past and they're an amazing group of clients and there isn't really a single developer there and i think you know it wasn't a deliberate stance but you know developers rarely have a sense of social purpose it's more about <laughs> I think that you puts know, them out of business if they if they do quick profit and um the bottom line and so uh, you know i guess they're the things that distinguish us from from others although there are plenty of people who will also take that same position and i i've read somewhere that you're a shoes off office is that oh, is that yeah. still true we we've yeah we've been shoes off for as long as i can remember at least 20 years where does that come from you know it it came from well first of all i always i never wear shoes at home ever um and people here uh, kind of obliged to take their shoes off it's it and it started also when we first moved into one of the warehouses we had this fabulous pink carpet because it was the cheapest way of covering the floor it was a brilliant acoustic you know in this big cavernous space it was really great acoustics and it was kind of kind of practical thing you know it keeps the carpet clean but it became it, it this kind of the the symbolism of it became much more significant because when you come into the office now you know in our georgian townhouse or whether it was the the warehouse the first thing you see is this very messy pile of shoes we make no you know we're very un-japanese we don't try and kind of order it all and everybody has their little shelf it's a mess and it it kind of it says something about who we are it's a certain informality there's a, a fantastically diverse um, selection of shoes from trainers to high heels to wedges to you know you, you name it we've we've got them and it kind of speaks of all of the individuals who are part of the team but it says something about you know we're all in this together there is a sense of common endeavor and when clients come to the office or, or consultants they're also politely asked to take their shoes off and i think it sends you know it strips away a layer it's it's kind of it's a leveler and it sends a sort of subliminal message you know you you are not in for a passive ride you are part of the process it's exciting it's going to be fun um and and that's what it's going to be like to work with us you know, I, I uh, when we were just chatting earlier, I mentioned that beautiful video of your home uh, from way back in 2016, which sounds feels like a million years ago now. Um, and there's a few different examples of this kind of curve that sort of shows up uh, again and again that you might see in your portfolio, whether it's in your home or in a museum or um, not exclusively, of course, it's not everywhere. But um, I, I'm curious if you have a thing for this kind of dramatic curve in architecture. Is that fair to say? Um, kind of yes and no. I mean, you know, the curve, the arc of a line, it's, it's uh, it, it, you know, if you use it well, it's a very beautiful move. 
Um, but it is, you know, it, it's generally it is used for a real purpose. Um, in our home, it's used in section rather than in plan. So the the north lights, the the roof lights, are this very kind of sweeping curve, and there there are two layers of them, and it's about using that surface of the curve to bounce the north light. So you get this sort of beautiful tumbling light falling onto the uh, into the space. Um, and there's a kind of softness and um, we've 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 used that device if you like in other places. Then there are if you look at something like the museum in Lisbon, the the mat um and there, you know, the, the, the curve plays out more in plan, but it was very much a response to the geography of the place and the, the, the proposition that we made about linking the riverfront to the old city with the design of a bridge. And this bridge is a, a single span, um, at, at grade that was the kind of it was the line that then drove the thinking for the rest of the the building and then the you know there are other curves that play out in that building and it's about creating a facade that is self-shading um about letting in only north light not south light you know that there's a there's always a sense of purpose behind it it's not a a purely sculptural move um and there are, you know, quite a few buildings where we, it's hard to find a curve. I mean, the V&A, there are, uh, there are curve, curves in the toilets, in the toilets, but not, not, not in the rest of it. And when it comes to sort of using the power of architecture to, you know, elevate and inspire or to soothe, um, you know, everyone has been so uh, awestruck and, 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 appreciative of your design for the Maggie Center on uh, Southampton. And can you tell me a little bit about how that pro- what that project is for those that may not be familiar um, with Maggie Center and their sort of legacy in architecture and what it is mm-hmm. and how it came about? So the, the Maggie Center is a wonderful, wonderful initiative um, that I've, I've known about right from its inception because Charles Jenks, who was married to Maggie Jenks, um, was one of my tutors at the AA. And Maggie Jenks died of cancer and was really appalled by the, the kind of lack of emotional support that there was. You know, there was nowhere to go. You were always in a very sterile environment in a hospital with plastic chairs and, you know, dealing with really difficult news and sadness and, uh, you know, a, a time of real, of real stress. Through, you know, her, Charles's kind of connections in the architecture world were second to none. And you know, together they came up with the idea of um, commissioning architects to design a place where people who were diagnosed with cancer and their friends and their family could go for respite, for to have a sense of calm, to, a, a space that would, where you would feel kind of 
cared for in 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 the in the widest sense of the word. So there's no um, this is not about any kind of medical support. It is about emotional support and and being in a place where you can share your experience with other people who are going through the same thing. You know, because a, a cancer diagnosis can be extremely well is, is always very difficult, but it is it can be a very lonely time in 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 your life. And and so that is how it came about. And so I was very conscious of the kind of amazing roll call of architects who'd already been commissioned Zaha and OMA and Liebskind and you know, you it just it was an amazing roll call. So everyone wants to do a Maggie Center. And a Maggie Center is always connected to an NHS hospital. But the the brilliance of the the initiative is that these are completely privately funded and not just privately funded for the capital cost of of building them but for running them in perpetuity i mean it it's an astonishing undertaking which has just Blossomed, and you, it, it, you know, there are other countries are it, they Maggie centers are, are are being built and designed in other countries now, and it's brought so much comfort to so many people, and so when we were asked, I mean, you know, I was absolutely delighted. It's the commission everybody wants to get. And tell me a little bit about this particular site and the hospital that it's attached to and how you kind of started that process. Okay, so the site that we were given was I have to say it must be the worst site that any architect in that in the in the roll call has been given because it was it's at um in Southampton and Southampton Hospital is a super hospital. It's an amazing hospital, but it ha- is a huge campus and it is surrounded by a sea of car park. I mean, literally, you you arrive and you just see cars. And you know, what are we going to do? How 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 can we respond to this? And so we wanted to, you know, how could we bring a bit of magic to this place? So we imagined that there had once been in the car park a piece of the new forest and the new forest is this amazing forest which is very near to the to the hospital and in imagining this we this kind of mature piece of forest through through which we carved out the the building for maggie's and it means that when you, you know, when you're, um, you go to the oncology center and let's say it's your, you haven't been to Maggie's and they, they want to give you the opportunity to, to go and, you know, try it out and see if that's somewhere that will, you know, be supportive for you. Instead of saying, you know, see that building over there, that red building, because it's quite some way from the oncology center. They say, see that garden over there. That's where Maggie's is. And so this kind of, you know, the merging between building and garden, between landscape and architecture was really at, at the the heart of what we did. And of course, you know, nature brings such comfort and such joy. And 
It's a freestanding building facing, you know, f- with the four points of the compass. So we were able to, with Sarah Price, who's a fantastic landscape architect, to design the the gardens to respond to the particular orientation and to design the gardens not just as places that you could go out into and that would be you would forget that you're in a car park because you would be surrounded by this you know very mature landscape but wherever you are in the maggot center you always have a view of nature framed and we we built up a little bit the 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 edge of the garden to hide the 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 cars so you don't you know you you very rarely see a car so you are in this you know the idea was can we create a kind of oasis of calm in the middle of a concrete car park and i i think we have and how many square feet is this um is the whole uh center they're, they're all the same size they're about 500 square meters so it's you know modest modest and and domestic in scale and and for very good reason because it's about you know, creating kind of home from home. It's it's the antithesis of the the big kind of faceless hospital. It's it's a a place with real character, um, and just a, a place where you can go and cry, where you can be yourself, where you can share experience with, with other, or be very private. Um, but you know, if ever there was a kind of a building typology that went to the kind of essence of what architecture is. I think it's a, a Maggie Center. And so there's no treatments that happen there. It's really more uh, consultation and relaxation and like a private moment. Yeah. And and there's a there's a kitchen at the heart of the Maggie's is is always a kitchen um, oh, where you can make coffee and you gather around the the table and above the kitchen um We've designed a, a a roof light with this very kind of soft um, kind of edge to it again, which you know we use light. It's one of the the materials that we have. It's one of the levers, if you like, to to tune a space and to give it a sense, a kind of you know a, a sense of of poetry, if you like. And I believe you won an award for uh, sort of the materiality of the space. And how it kind of relates to that light that you mentioned. Can you explain a little bit about the materiality of the building and and the project and and how that all kind of came together? Yeah, I mean, it's when I talked earlier about wanting to push the limits of things and and also you know to find the the materials that feel right for a, a place or you know or right for that particular building. We're doing the VNA and. Matt, we became very obsessed with ceramics and used them in very different ways. In the VNA, it was the first world's first porcelain courtyard. In um, Matt, it was using three dimensional tiles to really pick up the light from all sides. So it's not just the light is not just reflected from the face of the tile, but from the edges of the tile. And we learned a lot from both of those projects about how. You know, the different glazes will reflect differently, how it will create a certain nuance, a certain quality. So we wanted to to use ceramics at 
at Maggie's and and for another reason because you know ceramics is it it's a material that comes of the earth and this project was all about nature and the relationship between inside and outside and it it, it felt absolutely the right material to use and it so we we use ceramics and we use them as actually as load-bearing walls, which has never been done before. So that was a little bit of pushing the limits of things. But we also developed um, a, a series of glazes. And uh, I went to Barcelona with um, Laura, who, who's the CEO of the Maggie's. And we, we chose and mixed colors that are completely specific to Maggie's. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're one-offs for them. And they're very muted, very subtle, pale blue, pale pink, there's a kind of ochre. And then we played with the different colors of the base of the clay from a more kind of biscuity color to a more earthy color and played with the level of gloss or matte on the tiles so that you, you know, you really exaggerate the the sunlight when it falls on a particular surface and we ribbed the surface so you get a kind of multiplied effect. Um, and in choosing the the colors of both the, the clay and the glaze, we also wanted there to be, uh, you know, a real synergy with the colors of the landscape. And there are these beautiful beech trees that have um, kind of the, the, the trunks of a sort of pinky beige, particularly when the, the outer layer peels off. And so one of the, the colors that we chose was very much about, you know, a, a reflection of that piece of, of nature. And it, it, it works very well. And then, and then we, in the rooms that are more private, we clad them in stainless steel, but that is kind of rippled so it's a it's almost like it's sort of watery and what it does is it 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 reflects the light in this very kind of fluid watery way and the the nature as well so you get this kind of quite abstract um reading of of what is what is nature and, and what is building the landscaping you know how did you was there any kind of, you know, <laughs> you just have to dig up a car park or tell me a little bit about how you, how, you know, you work with the landscape designer to kind of create that feeling of that sort of forest effect. Because if in the photos that I've seen of the mm. project, there's a lot of, you know, curving paths where the landscape also kind of interacts with those reflective surfaces. Mm. So it kind mm. of creates a, it's not, um, it's not like building empty space. And some shrubs, yeah. <laughs> you know. No, well, you know, we we, we said that you know we want to use native species and to use the species that you get in the the new forest, and you know, also being very mindful that we want this to look mature on day one. So you know, the 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 planting has to have a certain resilience and be fast growing. And what's incredible, it's only been open, um, well year and a half, two years, but it really does feel now like a very, uh, a piece of landscape that feels very bedded down, that, that does feel like it's kind of always, always been there. And all of the rooms have um, huge uh, 
glazed doors that slide into themselves and, and open out onto this landscape. So it's a very easy transition between inside and outside. Was there anything in the brief when speaking with Maggie's that maybe surprised you about their requirements and, and kind of what they asked for? I think there wasn't anything that surprised me, but what I was so taken with was the, you know, because they've had so much experience of this now, the the level of kind of detail, the, the, the importance of the smallest things. Um, for example, when people come to Maggie's for the first time, they're often incredibly, they could be nervous, they could be, uh, it might be the first time they've really kind of come to terms with their diagnosis. It's a huge moment crossing that threshold, walking into a space and kind of wanting help, wanting support. Um, and what they had observed over the years is that people just need time to get over that moment, to get over that feeling of apprehension or fear, whatever it is. You know, they so they said you must be really mindful of this, and and the way that we interpreted that was, you know, as you as you approach, and it's this very kind of meandering path. There's a bench, so you don't have to go straight to the front door. You can go there, come back, sit on the bench, pause, collect your thoughts. You know, get to a place where you feel comfortable about crossing that threshold. And and that it, and you know so that was there was that was one detail and another detail was about the in which it is in the brief which is the size of the the toilets because a toilet is a completely private space and whether you're there by yourself or you're with family or friends the toilet is often the place where you go and have a cry and so they must be generous spaces with somewhere to sit, you know, with a seat that are beautifully designed where you will feel comfortable to be with your thoughts and to be sad. Um, have you heard any feedback from, you know, patients that have now, now that it's been about a year for-, for Yeah, the, we've had some Maggie. amazing feedback. Just, you know, there, there was, um, I was actually there on one occasion um I think it was, I, I went to have a look at it, you know, it finished because we completed it under under lockdown. And a woman came in and she just went, wow. Uh, and and it was so, it, she didn't need to say anything. And she smiled. And, and you know, it it is, it, it's like you've decompressed. It's, and there are, are many, um, you know, anecdotes like that where people really, feel that they have walked into a space that allows them to be in a different way. And if I asked Amanda Levy, what is good design? How would you respond? I'd say that it's something that lifts the everyday into the extraordinary and brings you a sense of joy. A special thanks once again to Duravit for sponsoring this episode. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more.
and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs>